Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it is the 15th of July. And in the studio we have Rob. And Edwin. It's just the two of us today. Just the two of us today. But how have you been? How have you been coping with, with lockdown 2.0 this week? You've been, I've been in a week longer, so I think I've had a bit more time to kind of get used mm. to it. But how are you adjusting? Look, I think like everyone, um, we all logically knew this, this was on the books. And that's been very different from actually hearing the, the actuality of it or experiencing the actuality of it. So it's like, we, we've known this could potentially happen. It's very logically, it's been a possibility. And then, but emotionally and intellectually and processing and dealing with this confusing bubble in the second lockdown has been overwhelming, I suppose, for everyone. Mm. So is, and like, that's, a, that's especially a top of like the things we've been seeing with like the continuation of the lockdown of the towers and some communities, which have just been so targeted within this, within this lockdown. So I think it's just been a very hard week to tell you the truth. Mm. And so how have you been coping with it a bit more? Do you think? Yeah. Well, look, I haven't been really, we've been, we've been, I mean, the weather's not helped, no. <laughs> but it's been a lot of, it's, it's been a lot of blobbing around, um, a lot of blobbing around and kind of reading, yeah. doing small passive activities, trying to, go easy on yourself if that makes sense doing a bit of spending a bit of time writing maybe frustrations down and really vocalizing like trying to really unpack why we are so uncomfortable at the moment or why we are feeling such stress in response so it's been just talking you know reflecting on myself but talking also to to my networks and listening to how it's hitting different people in different ways i guess on the flip side i've been not retreating but doing things that make me happy, just kind of spending time on my own and sort of trying to sort of have a bit of peace for a little bit, I think is kind of what I've been trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's been, it's, it's fantastic to hear that you've been saying that because we've also had, um, we've had a whole bunch of people coming out like community le- leaders, such as professor uh, Kulkarni from the director of Monash Alfred psychiatry research center. And they've said basically that, you know, since we've tasted some freedoms of opening cafes, restaurants, and schools that it, it becomes more difficult to return to lockdown. And that this is her words. Exactly. I'm sorry, their words. Exactly. But it's basically um, the second lockdown will lead to an increased mental health symptoms, perhaps, perhaps expressed as anger, despair, frustration, and resentment. And the point of that, I suppose, to, to say that out loud is it's like, it's an acknowledgement that this is going to be harder the second time round. And I think, as you said, Rob, reaching out for peace, reaching out for self-care and those moments of, you know, indulging or sustaining yourself are so essential. And it's so essential to recognize. 
and also acknowledge yeah acknowledging that it's okay to feel that that like that because definitely last week I was thinking what's wrong with me why am I feeling you know down or not feeling Mm. 100% with it and obviously because you've had this taste of life that we haven't had for for three to four months and then it kind of gets taken away from you again and so Yeah. yeah I think it's it took me a while to be like, no, this is okay. Like you can feel like this, you know, spend some, just a few, you know, quiet days with yourself. Um, mm. And I think that's definitely just something we'll need to keep in mind moving forwards. Absolutely. And something that we wanted to kind of focus on with this, within this episode, we're still going to be bringing current affairs uh, and news items today, but something that we did want to focus on is this idea of self-care and, you know, recognizing what the situation we're in taking it like it's, it's another checkpoint I suppose with this second lockdown and just working throughout the show to kind of reinforce that it's like we're, we're going to be a little bit lighter today we're going to try and focus on some maybe some different conversations to the ones we usually have which are more kind of issue current affairs dominated this one might be just a step back and looking at you know the techniques and tricks that we can keep ourselves looked after and maintained mm, so on that point what are you got for the show this week Edwin yeah so I actually will be talking to a clinical psychologist based here in uh, in um, Melbourne uh, Nasilifa and I'm going to be talking to her all about things about self-care and like burn activist burnout and the need to kind of you know maintenance of the self to ensure that we can help we can extend a community and explore that and a point I want to bring up also within this conversation is self-care is a bit of a rubbish term or, or has become a bit of a rubbish term. It's been kind of co-opted by corporate and wellness types. And it, and it can of honestly be a privilege marker, you know, go get your hair done, go get your nails done. It's self-care, honey. You know, you can only achieve self-care with this bar of soap. So when I talk about self-care I, uh, and I talked to Nasilitha later today, I really want to focus on that, like that grassroots, like getting back to like basics, um, self-care looking different for everybody and basically the mindset or the outlook or the approach, I suppose we want to take into managing this second lockdown. So I'm really excited to see what Nasilifa's recommendation is, recommendations are and advice, I suppose. Yeah. No, I think, I think there'll be definitely something for everyone to take from that conversation. Hmm. Um, for this week, I'm, I'm, we're still we're still doing some fun stuff with um. So tram thoughts this week, we're going to delve into that in a bit. But we're we're doing a bit of a bit of world building this time around. So we're we're, we're thinking, hmm. you know, if we were to build our ideal eco village, where, what would it be? You know, what would it be like? What are the sort of the features of it? So that'll be a little sort of a little moment of escapism, but also a reflection of actually how our societies could function as well. So current affairs, but with a bit of a bit of fun as well. I think basically we talked about Minecraft and world building and now, like, as you can see, a few weeks later, we are actually just going to do it. <laughs> and I definitely suggest listeners, like, at this point in the show, start thinking about your your answers or what your, your eco-village would look like because Rob's going to have some interesting prompts for us. So, like, yes. get, get the ideas bubbling. Get the juices flowing. Think of some good names. Mm. All that kind of fun stuff. Mm. Um, and then later on the show as well, I have an interview more, more based on what's been happening in the past few weeks. So I recently was doing some research and I found that in order to meet the required public housing shortage in Australia, we would have to build 100 dwellings every day for 20 years, which is, it's a statistic that I, I can't even really process as someone who works in 
the construction environment, the thought of a hundred dwellings a day is kind of mind blowing. So to help kind of unpack that a bit more, we've got David Kelly on the, who will be coming in to speak about what's the, the historical context that's led to this situation that we're in now. And what are some of the steps that we can think about in order to start reducing that gap and fulfilling the huge amount of social uh, dwellings that we need? And I mean, this is such a timely conversation too, with the idea of economic recovery and the fact that it's been floated. We've covered this on Wednesday breakfast, the idea of public housing and social housing as a, um, as, as a, a means of boosting economy or getting economy circulating again. So it's, it's great to hear the context, I suppose, behind it and just reinforce the potential or, or where we need to next step. Um, something I also wanted to bring up just on the topic of kind of social housing, but also some issues that feed into it is also this is the week of national action for the campaign Raise the Rate which refers to obviously our current state of new start, which has been artificially boosted for COVID-19, but could very likely drop back down to what um, we've seen for the past 24 years. So just catching people up. And I know we've just gone on about self-care and just gone on about taking some time out, but um, this week there will be a focus led by the Australian Council of Social Services and like-minded community organisations and grassroots organisations pushing for the raise of rates from $40 a day. So as we know, our current status of welfare and New Start is abysmal. Uh, we have like a huge percentage, I think it's something like 60 to 70, maybe further up of recipients of welfare have reported doing things like skipping meals in order to make New Start payments um, last. So this is such a time, it's such an important conversation. And so this week will be a national action. So if anyone wants to get online or do a postal drop or those sorts of things, it'll very much be in the kind of atmosphere of this week. Well, it's interesting you raised that point because I was reading an article this week uh, to do with PhD students and it was saying mm. something about 50% of students by the end of the year would consider dropping or deferring from their PhD because of primarily financial pressures. And for memory, the statistic was that about 10% of PhD students surveyed said that they were already skipping meals in order to make ends meet, which is absolutely tragic and it's incredibly damaging to the pipeline of academic research as well and the kinds of backgrounds from which people can then engage in academic research so i guess there's hoping that there will be some support coming to that part of the community
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. So in the past few weeks, 3CR has been quite closely following what's happening in the tower lockdowns in North Melbourne and Flemington. But in parallel, there's also a much needed discussion on the slow folding tragedy that is occurring in our cities in relation particularly to undersupplied public housing. And so to help us unpack this, joining us, we have David Kelly, a research fellow at the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. David, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. You've stated that in order for Australia to meet the public housing shortfall in Australia, we would need to build 100 public dwellings every day for the next 20 years. How have we ended up in this situation? Mm, Yeah, big question. Well, I, I suppose if you want to take a historical perspective, it probably started close to 70 years ago. In the immediate period after World War II, in order to accommodate a lot of returning servicemen and women, we built a whole bunch of public stock and we built it with quality in mind and uh, longevity. So a lot of these dwellings have actually stood the test of time. Um, And under this, we had an agreement between the Commonwealth and state government called the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement, which basically mandated each state government to build in um, enormous quantities public housing. And this continued up until about 1956, where we had this one minor change to that um, agreement, which allowed state governments to sell the stock to the private sector. So this didn't kick in immediately. Throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, we were still building a lot of public housing stock in in great quantities and keeping pace. But then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we started moving towards a different type of economic model, what today we might refer to as neoliberal economics 
where basically the state wants to see its role in providing essential social infrastructure reduced. They would prefer to leave it to this, the uh, private sector. And so we've had this kind of wide-scale program of privatization where we've been act actively getting rid of stock and leaving the private sector to um, basically coordinate the provision of affordable and low-income housing, which, of course, they're unable to do or there isn't actually any incentive for them to do. So that's kind of um, the broad brush um, explanation as to why we're here, how did we get here. Um, but here is actually a good time to be. We have a moment now where we can harness some of the exposure that's been drawn to the public housing shortages and, and the issues. But whether or not we take that up is another question altogether. I guess also looking at the statistics that we're seeing of the, of the shortfall, and as you say, this is perhaps an opportune time to really think about investing more in public housing. And we, we have seen some announcements in various states across Australia, but it is quite an overwhelming number to look at. So how can we use this opportunity now to start closing that gap? Mm, um, we, need, we need to really shift a lot of frames of thinking about things. Um, one of the things that emerged over the last 30, 40 years is the supremacy of home ownership. Um, we've shifted away from this idea that the community can provide essential community resources and, and shifted it towards um, private ownership. And housing just isn't a very um, compatible, lively infrastructure and to facilitate that shift. So there's one thing that Australia does pretty well. Um, we do pretty good housing economics research. And so we know that the most cost-effective way of providing low-income housing, public housing, is for direct capital investment by the government. This is the best bang for buck. So the state government needs to build en masse public housing and the federal government needs to fund it, basically. This would involve actually breaking down some of the logics that our various treasury departments operate on, which is these kind of short-term economic cycles, and think about housing as this long-term economic asset that provides an essential infrastructure for the community. So that's one thing, capital, cap, direct capital investment into a build program, which aims to meet and extinguish the demand on every single public housing waitlist around the country. The second thing is to abandon the privatisation of the stock that we already have. So currently the Victorian government is rolling out a public housing renewal programme, which is removing public housing from inner city areas. So there's 11 estates within inner city Melbourne that are currently um, being decanted. So people have been relocated, displaced. They're being demolished and then they're being rebuilt in higher density with a minimum of unbalance, 70% um, private housing. And then the other 30% would be community housing, which isn't the same as public housing. It's actually not for profit, but private. So this um, provides an extremely modest uplift on those estates to about 10% on top of what was already there but there's a decrease in the amount of bedrooms. So actually each of these 11 estates will only be able to accommodate, will be able to accommodate less low-income residents 
than what was there before. So this renewal program is said to provide a whole bunch of new housing, but in what you get in units and uplift, you decrease bedrooms and therefore reduce the capacity of these sites. So that's another thing, abandon the renewal programs that are currently being rolled out by the state um, to invest in maintenance so that the majority of the aging public housing stock doesn't run into obsolescence and then become uninhabitable. So there's a bunch of housing around Melbourne and Victoria more generally that could still be fit for purpose if it was maintained, if there was an actual maintenance budget that could meet the expectations of 21st century living. But for decades now, particularly the Victorian government have been divesting from maintenance. Um, So we invest the least amount of money in maintenance than any other state in Australia. So maintenance, abandoned renewal programs and direct capital investment in a public housing build program. I guess the other point to that is obviously there's a lot of the apartments have fallen to as a state of disrepair and that's related to the maintenance policies. The other question is, do we actually have to build, physically build all these hundreds of thousands of dwellings or can we retrofit and work with the existing housing stock? Is there enough housing stock accounting for obviously future population growth to work with what we already have this is a this is um a question that's quite complex because plan melbourne which is the kind of primary planning document for the victorian government estimates that we will need 1.6 million dwellings by the year 2035 in order to meet our population growth so We need dwellings. The city is growing, the state is growing, and we do need dwellings. But if we cast our minds back to the last state election, there was figures going around that there was over 80,000 vacant dwellings in metropolitan Melbourne that were held in private hands. So we actually have enough private dwellings that are sitting vacant to house everyone who's homeless in the state but there's a mismatch in values. So we, we value a vacant private property more than we do housing a homeless person. So there's a sh- broader shift in values that needs to take place if we, if we didn't really want to build anything. But yes, we actually still need to build in order to meet the future population growth. In terms of this, the public housing stock, yes, there is a need for more dwellings to be built. Um, We do need to accommodate the 40-something thousand applications that are on the wait list, which then roughly equates to 100,000 people. Um, And the only way we can do that is by building more rather than actually knocking them down, which is what we're doing. The other thing is that we have a lot of public... We have a lot of public land that's sitting in public tenure around the city that's currently being sold off in mass. So this sort of public land should be, the program of actually selling that public land should be stopped and public housing should be built directly on that land because it's cost effective because you're not paying for the land. Um, interest rates are at the lowest they've ever been. So you can borrow, you can go into debt to actually do it. Um, and so there's, there's a numerous shifts that need to happen in order just to provide and meet capacity. And I imagine many of the similar issues, these are the same issues happening in London and various other cities across the world in terms of the 
the balance of empty apartments and then balance with the number of people who actually need those apartments as well. I guess also thinking more globally, are we seeing examples or have you seen examples of where public housing procurement has been done particularly well? There's two points to make on this. Yes, we can look globally and we can say there are models that work much better than our one. In the OECD, Victoria ranks right down the bottom in terms of public housing provision. So we are the biggest loser. So we could literally look anywhere around the world and they're doing it better. Um, Singapore is a good example where 80 to 85% of their total housing stock was either built by the government or is in government hands now. So a huge proportion is either subsidized or decommodified to some extent. Um, the U.S. do it much better than us too. I mean, in some places, there's over 20% public housing in, in some um, regions of the U.S. Um, of course, all of these sorts of Western countries are moving away from the public housing model um, and residualizing that particular tenure to an extent that it only accommodates the very, very, very needy, which we think that that needs to be expand, expanded considerably so that anyone who wants public housing can have it, no matter what your income is. The second thing is that we actually do it pretty well and we have the capacity to do it pretty well. So we just have to look at our history when we've done it before. So we've done it very well here before, especially in Victoria. We had a um, massive um, slum clearance model, which built a whole bunch of public housing. Um, we need to reinstate a, a clause within our national housing agreement framework that says you can't sell public stock to the private sector. That will prevent the leaking. And we need to actually harness the expertise that we have in this country. So housing economics, we're, like I said, we're very good at that. We know what the most cost-effective model is. We have a very good construction industry who can do this, who need to be put back to work in these sorts of times where we have economic downturns. So why not get them to do public housing? We also have very good building standards and apartment standards here, which would provide really up-to-date 21st century living standards to the people who need it most. So we don't have to look far, but, you know, if we do look anywhere, it's, it's surely better than Victoria. The other impact to all of this, in particular the shortfall, is the, the ongoing stigmatised narrative surrounding public housing residents. And that has also come to the fore in the last few weeks as well with, with how many of the residents are being portrayed. What are some ways that we can try to shift that narrative? The biggest issue with the stigmatisation of public housing spaces and residents, it's not other people in the community actively deriding them or um, wrapping them up in negative connotations. It's the government itself. Um, it's the structure that provides the housing. So if we actually maintained those properties and we actually invested in them, we wouldn't be experiencing this sort of um, narrative of decline around these spaces. So we have this situation at the minute where because so many of these estates are unmaintained, they attract negative sorts of narratives and commentary from various government. The other thing that I would say is because the proportion of public housing to general housing stock has declined for decades now and there's less public housing now than there was 10 years ago. It means that the people who live in public housing have become 
hyper marginalized over time. So in order to get into public housing, you need to be in a really bad situation. That wasn't always the case. Um, majority of people who are in public housing um, in mid-century were, were not people who experienced homeless or severe mental and emotional trauma, um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. You know, it was, it was a general population tenure and it was legitimate in that way. Over time and over decades, we've marginalised it so much that the only sorts of people who occupy that space now have so many compounding and intersecting needs that it's easy for others and for the government to point to them and say they're the problem. So in order to destigmatize it, we need to change the structure around it. Not so much the people. The people are, are doing the best they can. It's the structures that sit around them that need to change. So we need an expansion of the stock so that, the, so that those who occupy public housing aren't all competing for the same sorts of resources at the margins. And also to maintain these properties so that they don't attract these sorts of negative negative commentaries so that they are of a standard that fit the utopian ideals on which they were built. It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy of the lack of investment stigmatizes it and then that further stigmatizes the people within it and then that contributes to less funding or less public interest and then seeing the value investing in it. So it's really becoming a bit of a, a downward spiral, unfortunately. Yeah. Totally. It's a closed circle and it needs to, someone needs to step in and intervene. Well, David, thank you very much for sharing your research and work in this space. No worries. Thanks for, thanks for having me. If you were just joining us, you were listening to David Kelly, a research fellow at the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and time for some tram thoughts. So we're doing it a little bit different this week. So rather than, I guess, delving too much into one topic, we're still, we're still doing that, but we're doing a bit of a, a fun bit of world building. It's a little bit, of, little bit of a break from everything that's kind of happening. And of course, it's got a dash of radical living within it, of course, because what else would we be doing? Um, so this is kind of building on previous conversations that Iwin actually had about a well-building game that she played with some friends a few weeks ago and a previous tram thoughts we'd done on sort of living communally and housing communes. And so I was kind of interested in this idea of if we were to create like an eco-village from scratch, what would it actually look like? So I guess to kind of before jumping into that, some basic sort of definitions to help build up the picture. So the word eco-village, it's, it's essentially a portmanteau of two words, eco-village. So obviously there's a really strong focus on sustainability, both the social, environmental, economic kind of sides of it. So the classic sort of three-pronged definition, but it's also an intentional community that has been set up, an intentional village. 
And the overall aim of an eco-village is to absolutely minimise its impact on the environment as much as it can. And so it is very much originates from a grassroots sort of origin. And there are some really key characteristics that define eco-villages. Generally, they have a really strong sense of communal values. So it's not just the fact that you're trying to live lightly, it's the fact that you're living within a community as well. And they also try to design settlements that fit best within their natural environment. So an eco-village in the UK would be very different to an eco-village in, in Singapore, to Melbourne, to Sao Paulo, wherever it may be. Um, and then I guess thinking on the environmental side, there's often a strong range of technical things that help achieve a more uh, eco-village uh, outcome. So, for example, they might use wastewater treatment by sort of certain reeds or fish ponds to help filter through all the wastewater. Um, obviously, things like solar panels, but also trying to minimise waste, reusing building materials, all that kind of stuff. Socially, they're aiming for as much autonomy as possible from the outside world. They're, but also, there is some variability of how closed off or open it is to the external world. Um, and then economically, they're striving to be independent and self-sustaining. So some of them have their own internal trading systems, their own currencies, perhaps they don't even have a currency. And so the broader society, many might see this as kind of like a form of escapism, but people within the eco-villages themselves do not see them as these kind of, quote, utopian fugitives. They're more just saying that this is a different way of living and it's very deeply embedded in social ecological systems. So some brief history of how eco-villages actually arose to be. They were first given a formal definition in about 1990, but the many of the ideas that they embody actually stem back all the way back to the, the 18th century. So this was in light of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of chimney stacks and smog and puffing smoke across London. And you, there were many authors and writers and designers that really talked about the spoiling of the British landscape. I was just going to add there, Rob, like if you look at poetry and romanticism, like it's all about the sublime. It's all about nature as this, this huge powered vessel that we're destroying and mm. mechanizing and ruining. And, and it's like, it's so wrapped up into the romantic movement. It's not funny. So absolutely like touching on that. It's, it's the devastation or the loss, that feeling of loss and you know, all of that romantic nonsense. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these points are also touched in Frankenstein, this idea of mucking with nature and the impacts of that and this idea of human and man pursuit to sort of conquer the world that hasn't been found yet. Um, so in response to that whole kind of context, it then really led to a rise in movements away from the city and back to nature. So there's very much this romanticizing of nature. And so John Ruskin, who's a very prominent art critic from that time, he actually strived to, to develop a self-sustaining farm and crafts shop outside of the main cities. So that was the kind of first wave. There's then a second wave in the 20th century. And this sort of was a response to this belief during the century where there was this unlimited faith in progress in science at the complete expense of the environment. And so this was an era when it was really starting to be understood the extent of an environmental crisis and the existential crisis that was starting to emerge. And so that's when the term started to first appear. And Shifting to today, there's now thousands of these eco-villages across the world. 
And there are pretty interesting sort of phenomena that has definitely accelerated in the last sort of 20 years. And I think they're becoming more and more accepted and mainstream in the last 10 years. So I thought what would be interesting is that, you know, every eco village is unique. They're kind of like a piece of art. They're no two are the same. And we kind of thought it'd be interesting to create a world of what it would be like to live within one of these. So I thought we'd play a game, Edwin, of let's create our own eco village. As corny as. <laughs> we don't have special sound effects, unfortunately, for this, this time. No, it's just, it's just me do do doing, but like, yes. <laughs> so I guess the first question, it's an interesting point, is like, where do we locate it? Would you, would you mm. want it to be more rural, more urban, peri urban? Where, where would you mm. want it to be? Well, I mean, personal preference, I like being landlocked. So that's one interesting point. I feel like I feel like it'd actually be really interesting to base it in an urban setting rather than a rural-based setting. You could just find because era, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it might be it might be interesting because it's like it'd be really fascinating to then have the contrast of this this hypothetical eco-village in contrast with the the highly mechanized or industrialized world. So I'm I'm thinking that could be rather interesting mm. rather than opposed to something that's kind of far out, inaccessible, requires, you know, a 4-hour drive to get to. So I'm that's what I'm kind of envisioning. What do you what are you thinking? Well, that suits well with me because <laughs> I I'm an urbanist at heart, so I kind of need to live near a city. Like I really enjoy mm. what a city brings and walking through the city and the kind of energy that comes with that. So I'm mm. thinking maybe Herring Island is a good spot for us. It's in the Yarra. Fabulous. It's in the city. It kind of, it, it fits both, both bits. Okay. We'll just, we'll just take it. That sounds great. Take it. Yeah. We'll completely just take the land. We'll just renovate it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what would be a good size? Like how many people would you feel comfortable with? living with mm. i suppose as many people as we can support on a small island which might require some actually discussion with specialists of what's sustainable True. Um, especially with the idea of families and the potential for more offspring that's, that's a big thing. i mean i'm, I'm not I, I think there is still openness to the outside world because you know it's good for genetic diversity True. Well, yes, that's a very good point. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we don't want anything incestuous. No. No. Um, okay. Well, like we'll see. We'll see what the island can bring us. Um, I was having some brainstorming for some names. I was thinking mm. Wednesday World is potentially one on the shortlist. You know, like West mm. World and Wednesday World, and a lot better. Um, there's also three cool roos, like three CR, three cool roos. <laughs> Idwin's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you should be allowed to name things, Rob. No. Um, oh, I'm just. I'm going to be just as bad though. The other thought I had was um, rather than Melbourne, Melbourne, like it is Melbourne. Melbourne was the other. Idea. I quite like. I quite like Melbourne. I feel like also something that would massively. And I mean, within this conversation, I, like let's just prefix it. When we say take the land, we mean take the land from the government institutions, <laughs> um, not from obviously First Nations people who have had yeah. their sovereignty trotted on downtrodden and brutalized for centuries so i feel like maybe with a name it would be really important to consult local custodians pay back the land make sure the land was you know free to use and not and and kind of negotiate those boundaries and work yeah in consultation and work with with local groups to actually choose an appropriate name so i'm going to say something something from the cooler nations i think would potentially be a way to go 100 percent agree 100 percent agree mm -hmm. 
so I guess the second kind of key point is to think about who could then live here. So I guess it's an interesting question of how is it decided who joins the community? Because, I mean, it is a, it is a small community. It's, it's not everyone who wants to join can join. So how do we start to think about who joins? Or is it just like a sort of maybe there aren't that many people who'd be interested. So it's kind of self-selecting in itself. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, this idea of gatekeeping. I really want to do something just ridiculous, like, you know, a secret underground network where you have to go to the same bar three times, you know, on Wednesdays for three months and you finally get past like this, this uh, invisible ink pamphlets, which leads to a little map, which leads to the island. I feel like that could be fun. Um, but maybe people don't share my sense of humor. So... <laughs> People might lose patience, but... Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I also feel like something like a multiple choice test would be kind of wrong as well, you know? Like, if you had, like, the values and the, the regulations of the of the this island, having something like, you know, do you agree with this? And then multiple choice questions. I feel like that would also, like, shade in the bubble might be a bit discriminatory. Well, um, an interesting oh. point about do you, do you only let people in with the same values or do you have a more mm. diverse range? Because uh, obviously there is importance in having diverse views. Yes, that's very true. I reckon, I reckon it might be an idea for, like, different skills on the island. Like, okay. different abilities so like if you're able to be like you know you show up and you're like this is something that i can produce and i'm happy to look after within the community or like it like the the taking on of responsibility because that shows a commitment to to this island mm-hmm. um yeah and and to it's you know to respecting it's it's what it what it has to give is like what can i give back maybe yeah and i think everyone has something to give and so it's nice mm. to be part of a community of giving and so I guess that kind of sets a nice establishment for this community of this is a community about your skills, you're valued as a community member, and we can all contribute. I like that. Yeah. Why well, I like doing yeah, okay. this we can, we can Excellent. develop. <laughs> uh, I guess the next point is how connected would we want this to be to the external world? Because some of these eco-villages are pretty much as closed off as they can be some are slightly more open. So I guess, would you, do you have a a sort of an immediate preference of what you'd prefer? I prefer, I think I prefer self-reliance. I like the idea of like not requiring, not, not that libertarian, you know, no government interference, but that idea of being able to stand, like, you know, being energy, self-standing on your energy kind of thing. Um, I suppose it's like the ideas of like, what parts do we want to interact with, with government? versus what do we want to kind of avoid? I mean, we want to avoid, like, let's say, for example, like crass consumerism or, or that sort of stuff. We don't necessarily, who knows, maybe on this island, we don't necessarily dislike taxes because we can see the value of them within our surrounding urban design. So I, I wonder, I think it's like the sort of thing where we want to be able to be independent enough to be on our own two feet, but still not pretending like the rest of the world doesn't exist, I suppose. What, what's your thoughts? I think kind of building on a previous point of, I love mm. As much as I love being in nature, I kind of want to yeah, yeah. still explore. You want to have that. That's fair. I yeah. think that's a healthy balance. And I think I, it's a healthy balance. I like the cross-pollination of when you visit new places or, you know, I'm imagining, let's pretend there's a whole bunch of eco-villages that pop up in Melbourne. It would be nice mm. to visit other eco-villages and sort of cross-fertilise ideas and see how other things are done. I think that's, there's something nice in that. So... I think, it, yeah, it needs a degree of definitely being open. And I think then with that, letting people in as well. It's not, you know, it's not a closed yeah. off community. It's, it's quite open, 
yeah i i think that is i think that's necessary because the ignorance of something else's existence like if we if you just close yourself off completely especially when you're slap bang in the middle of a city it's (laughs) not ultimately sustainable so i think like there has to be some sort of as you said i like cross-pollination that's a good way of um of describing it yeah it's like bees they don't Mm. go to the same flower they go to different flowers no they go to different flowers yeah I like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then we've kind of got our, uh, we've got the sort of foundations of the world setting up. Now we have to think about how does it actually operate? So mm. I guess one thing we can think about is, is trade and whether that it has to be currency, whether it has to be dollars or could it be something else entirely? Like you've got festivals like Burning Man where it's exchanges of favors or, or other sort of services. Mm. Would, is there a, I mean, I think it's quite nice, this idea of like a kind of like an alternative currency where you, you it's kind of, it's, it's good acts of faith or trading arts or, or trading skills as a way of sort of doing trade could be quite interesting. Mm. I don't know how it would work in the long run. I like, I like the idea of um, trading through skills. That's interesting through like upskilling or sharing parts of, you know, your experiences. So if someone's like, you know, I'm willing to show you this, if you could show me how to do that, blah, 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 blah. That would be quite interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to, because we have to look at like what we've got as resources on an island. Like what do we, is there a lot of space to grow stuff? Are we going to erode the land that we're living on if we do so? Uh, the local, you know, fish and stuff. Like, I imagine we'd eat a lot of like sea <laughs> sea creatures uh or river i should say river creatures uh but then again sustainable and stuff like that so it's like when i think of maybe barter and trade i usually think of like you know here's some food here's some shelter here <laughs> like that sort of very transactional sort of stuff so i think in order to make this kind of an eco village of a point of difference uh, i don't know maybe it's like um you borrow someone's skills for a certain amount of time and you look for a way that you can use your skills in an area they might need. So if you need like, you know, something fixed on like a house, someone who has more building skills does that. And you might, you know, I don't know, look after the kids for or like three hours lesson. or something or like do that. a cooking lesson. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, I, I would, I'd be interested to see knowledge sharing systems. And if you had a big enough group, like 50 people, let's, let's say, or more that could, that could potentially be rather interesting. Yeah. And I guess then, it then really helps establish this eco village as one about skills. And so when people are joining, it's kind of what can you contribute? We'd love to see how you mm. contribute to the rest of the community. So that kind yeah. of further cements and ingrains that within to mm. the kind of DNA. And it means you're not, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the cook and that's what you were defined by your skill. It's more like, you know, um, Oh yeah. Like maybe I will share this recipe with this person or maybe I'll, I'll try wood turning and, you know, and passing down those small, like those small things you pick up in your, in your experiences, I suppose. Yeah. Cause we've all got lots of different skills that I suppose, unless we um, sit down and really dissect all of them. Yeah. yeah. We, we kind of pick up and yeah, I feel like that could, that could be a thing. I think that would be a nice, I think, I think we should do that more even if we're not within an eco village personally. So what? <laughs> <laughs> Only in an eco village, Rob. Only in, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so I guess leading to the next point is mm. obviously whenever you, when you have a community, you have to start thinking about governance. And I think a really actually slightly sideways example, but I, it, I guess it comes from my discipline, is there's a really 
cool architecture practice in the UK called Assemble. And so they originated by 17 grads who couldn't find a job during the last recession. And so their first project was they found an old petrol station and converted it into a cinema. Very DIY, very sort of on the fly. It only cost, I think, $10,000 to get all the materials. It was very, very cheap Mm. for a building. And so since then, what they've done is they've set up their organization and it's about 17 members. It's a very flat system. So there is no bureaucracy. There is no leader. Everything is decided through consensus. But on the Mm -hmm. flip side of that, it meant that everything's really slow to make decisions. And so there's kind of those two balances make it quite difficult, but then the outcome is that it produces something very unique and everyone feels very listened to. So I guess that's kind of one example of a smaller organization, I guess kind of emphasizing the point that, you know, maybe we do have to think about some kind of governance structure, but what are your, what are your thoughts about it? Well, I'm just thinking of the norm of consensus for the world trade organization and Mm -hmm. the fact that like, that's a much bigger organization and it's, it's been re- relatively ineffective since it, it um, was created because America is doing exactly that. It's pushing its way around, demanding, you know, t- taxes to be removed and all that sort of stuff. So it, it, it's prolonged decision-making to a ridiculous extent. And they've had a huge amount of meetings, but not a lot of outcomes. So I wonder how we'd do it. I mean, at the moment, my faith in democracy is a bit cracked. So I don't necessarily think it, would ha- it could be through like a voting or a, re- a reference system. Then again, something where it's like, I suppose, preferential, I think I could get on board with. So like finding a consensus or negotiation through that idea of like, okay, well, this would be my preference. This would be my second preference. And then figuring out what kind of works for most people I, that, or, or figuring out what works for all, I, I suppose I quite like. So if there's a decision to be made, putting around like a list of options, <laughs> which takes into account everyone's views and then finding out which, which option kind of comes out as the main, I suppose. Well, it's interesting your point about the World Trade Organization because I guess that one way of arguing it is that it's Mm. not the fact that a consensus system is flawed. It's the fact that there are certain agents or actors who have more power and that Mm. disrupts that system. So I guess it's about how you set it up and how power is, is managed. Yeah, it's it's like well, it's 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 in the World Trade Organization. Obviously, America has huge swaying power. The the idea is they're all supposed to have individual voting power. The idea, mm. and I think it, you're you're right. It, it's how people enter into that uh, negotiating process, uh, whether it's in good faith or when it is whether it is in this you know extraordinarily sovereign my way or the highway approach. Mm. So I, I think again within our governance thoughts and our eco village, we're going to need to think about what how we almost prefix conversations to make sure people all go into it with a similar feeling of wanting to have that compromise and wanting to have that joint solution. And, and even if that is acknowledging, Hey, it's going to take us longer. It's going to be maybe a bit more convoluted, but we're going into this with the intention to create a, like a a concoction, a cocktail of everyone's preferences. Yeah. And I guess, so maybe that's like, yeah, a prefix. And I guess if we're talking about a group of people, that's 50 to a hundred people, I guess maybe then it's easier to to sort of emphasize the point that, you know, sometimes your opinion won't be as considered as other times, but that is the nature Mm. of consensus. And so it's important to think about to have a cohesive hundred people working together. We have to think about what works for the majority of people most of the time. And that helps the system work. But then I guess it's tricky. It's tricky. 
I would quite like, and I mean, this is completely naive and a bit whack, but I would love to have a priority wall where you have like, you know, let's say sticky notes for a moment, but you have ideas of what we want to do for the eco village in the interest of the eco village. Uh, and, and it could be, you know, it could be social, it could be trade based, it could be anything of different aspects and to have people potentially come over and stick things up on, you know, this is a high priority to me, or this is a low priority to me. Of course, again, this would be, this could be easy to abuse, but hopefully you'd be working on like a culture where people were going, okay, you know, might as well do this in my interest and, and, and kind of seeing how people's thoughts develop around issues. And if something's been staying up, you know, it's been having like scores of people tick. Yes, I agree with this or something like that going, okay, well, this is something that's stick around, been around for the last three months. Maybe we start thinking about how we act on it. I guess the other thing that's also nice with a method like that, and this is a technique that mm. I've learned when I'm working with lots of groups of people was to do the yes and method. So you say, yes, I Ooh. agree. And, and then you add something to it. And so then it's kind of constantly building. And so you're, you're agreeing with something, but then you're bringing mm. a new perspective or a new idea to that. And it helps kind of mm. enrich it. And with that inbuild of a greater variety of understanding of what this is. And I guess that helps with misinterpretation as well. We actually had that. So with the role-playing game where you referenced earlier called A Quiet Year, we actually had that decision-making process where once a turn you could make a declaration or a question. And what happened is you would make the declaration or statement like, or a question, right? So I think we should do this or opposingly a question. Would we, would we like to do this? Right. And everyone took turns around the table to then basically give an answer without the expectation that there would be a rebuttal or any sort of opposition. So it'd be like, I think this. And then the person would go, well, I think this, or I think this. And I mean, you could say something, you could declare something completely unrelated to the declaration or question, but I found it really interesting hearing people's add-ons in isolation rather than as a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because it was less of a tennis match and less of an immediate kickback of like, oh, how do I continue to push my point? And more a pausing and going, oh, I had not even thought of that. So it was kind of interesting to have that isolation of, because we're so used to debating, we're so used to pushing our idea and continuing to push our idea that it was interesting just to have opposing arguments just presented and that was it. No, no follow-up, no rebuttal, no presupposition. Mm. No, that's really interesting. And I think the other thing that that does is it means that everyone can have an opportunity to express their opinion without the fear of them being uh, immediately negated. It sort of allows people to sort of sit in other people's ideas. Okay, Absolutely. So I, I feel like we're getting somewhere with our governance, governance structure. I guess the last thing to keep us happy and sane is uh, arts and entertainment. So I guess, would you be open to more, I guess we've kind of already touched on this point, but I guess how external, how much entertainment do we want to come from the outside world? I mean, I guess I would say, yes, we should, because I think it's important for that cross marination of ideas and entertainment. But I think also there is that importance of creating local art or local performance to kind of express the, the unique culture of that, that environment. I like, I really like the idea of participatory arts or the idea of, you know, having big communal art pieces in the central of our island that, anyone can add to and build. I like that idea. Um, I also like the idea of whatever eco village looks like. We need to have the building of capacity in art. Cause I know, you know, going to school myself and experiencing art in a very school-based setting, like I was terrible at it. I didn't enjoy it. So I like the idea of kind of teaching people from 
or, or, or including art and artistic practices in every aspect of our eco village, even in things like construction and the, the need for beauty and, you know, mm-hmm. this, this sort of creativity in, in design and thought. So I don't know, that doesn't quite exactly answer the question, but I think like art needs to be a reoccurring motif in li- literally everything we do. To, to, to build that capacity and build that interaction with it. I also like the idea of, I agree, cross-pollination. We're in an urban location. Like we should be getting, you know, different singers in and different um, artists we should be supporting and all that sort of stuff. So I, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. Like if we've got a cultural resource near us, let's definitely get them in. And then let's have something regularly reoccurring on our island that that is more kind of uh, us focused. Mm. I guess one final one final question I have so mm. I'd win. Would there yes. be a local radio station? Uh, <laughs> uh, I was actually, I was, I was having this quick question because, um, you know, with the death of traditional media and newspapers, the question is why does broadcast stick out? Like, why is it, why is it still around? Why is it still listened to? And I suppose it's because radio and broadcast remain such a essential, intimate connection with audiences. You know, it, it, it's one of those things where it's like it still has very much a place in our society in conveying information. When your internet goes dead, radio is still on. In mm. emergencies, radio is still on. And as such, it's a lifeline to community. So I think it's rather essential we do, to tell you the truth. I think something like a printout newspaper would be maybe a little less sustainable. Mm-hmm. But I think a broadcast, even if you didn't have a constant one, if you had like an hour you know, two hour broadcast, one at the start of the day, one at the end of the day. I, I think it could be a good idea. I think so. Well, I, I'm glad that as a community radio presenter, you have advocated that position. So. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Just a little bit of a uh, little bit of three CR love in there as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for helping to build our mm-hmm. little eco village. I hope it does become a thing one day. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe in the future, we will see this merge. But I think, I don't know, I think in the exercise, there's things to learn about how we think about how we live our lives in our current form, which is definitely not an mm. eco-village. It's, it's a, a gigantic yeah. city for many of us. A sprawling, um, sprawling urban disaster at, at sprawl, times. A slow motion disaster at times, yes. Uh, but perhaps, you know, alternative realities of, of how we could live into the future. So thank you, Ivan. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Now, for our next interview, here to discuss a bit more about self care and sustainable practices throughout the lockdown, I have Nasalifa, a culturally responsive clinical psychologist based here in Nam, Melbourne. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, the first question I wanted to kind of jump into is uh, this second lockdown, which has arrived and has kind of seen a huge wave of collective un- unhappiness across Victoria. Uh, more than I think we were expecting. I, I think we all knew that a second shutdown was logically a possibility, but the actuality has been draining for many. I wanted to ask you, how do you reckon we manage with the disappointment, stress, and I suppose fear that we are all feeling? Yeah, I think um, as much as it was expected that there'd be a second lockdown, I think it is incredibly disappointing. And I think psychologically there's a huge impact because we had hope that it would kind of, it wouldn't happen. Mm. And that hope being taken away is nothing to kind of look lightly at because that's such an important thing that we, yeah, losing hope about 
things changing and things being okay and going back into what feels like step one is pretty hard. Um, yeah, so I, I guess fr from my perspective, I think I, in the mental health space, we weren't expecting people to respond positively. I think it's, it was going to have, I think people have been talking about people far more equipped than I am to talk about the health, physical health side of it. We're talking about how um, a second wave would actually be more difficult to manage. But I think psychologically, it's far more difficult to manage, firstly, because it's a second kind of experience of this loss of autonomy and choice and all this stuff. So hap that happening again actually is a lot more difficult second time around. So I think it's important for people to be aware and be kind to yourself and be, it's okay to say that this feels um, like beep, <laughs> like it feels like poop. Like it's, 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 a, it's not an easy thing to have to do twice in a short space of time. And I think we need to start with being kind to ourselves about how difficult it is to feel like we're doing this again. Mm. And I suppose that leads on to it. Like, how do we approach mental health throughout this crisis? Because, I mean, mental health isn't something we talk about on a usual day. And I suppose yeah. with this acknowledgement of it being you know, of, of all of these feelings and this loss of hope and all that sort of stuff. How do we approach mental or how do we talk about and approach mental health throughout the crisis? Yeah, I think that's such an important point that we don't really talk about mental health mm. that much to begin with. And then all of a sudden we're expected to not only talk about it, but then also cope better and deal with it and have the tools. And how do you get the tools for something you don't discuss? So I guess I've, um, I kind of had a bit of a cheat sheet for clients when the first um, lockdown happened of what I was telling every single client in every single session about things that I think will help them cope better psychologically. And one of those first, the steps is first acknowledging how difficult it is and validating your emotions about it being awful and feeling bad and whatever you're feeling is okay to feel it. Just give yourself the space to feel it. I guess the second thing that is good to do is make a commitment to to allow yourself to feel what you're feeling, but also do things that make you feel better. And that's kind of a, an important step. So would you like me to go through my cheat sheet of the things that I, tell every, I was telling everyone? I would, I'd love it. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> um, so I, I guess the first thing is to have a routine. And that means sleep, at the, go to sleep at a reasonable time, wake up, shower, make your bed, get dressed and have three meals or whatever, however many meals you have in a day, but live like you did previously. Mm. And that requires having a really set routine because it won't, they won't be the external things that tell you to set routine. Can if I, that makes sense. Yeah. Can I just jump in there? That's been something yeah. I know everyone's experienced during the crisis, just the breakdown of routine and how fast yep. it's gone to, I, I know f for me, I've got a very lesser version of it, but for uni, it's like, because my lectures are at 10 o'clock, it's rolling out of bed five minutes before class. And it's just yeah. this complete breakdown of any sort of structure, which is so aimless or listless. Leaves you so yes. listless. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes kind of the days drag into the, like, it feels like I've, you've been living the same day for the last 72 hours. Um, because we're like, we're human, as human beings, we like routine. We need structure. And, um, yeah, we've lost that in some ways. So I guess creating that for yourself and routine isn't about restricting what you can or can't do. It's just setting times to do it. So a basic routine structure that I'm telling people is go to sleep, 
let's say, let's be good and say we go to sleep at 10. Um, let's be nice to ourselves and say we wake up by seven <laughs> in the morning. Um, when you get out of bed, get up, shower, get dressed like you're going outside or wear like, you can wear your same comfortable clothes, but make some sort of effort in doing that because part of getting dressed is self-care. It's like, I'm going to look after myself enough to present myself in a particular way that makes me feel good and comfortable in the world. And that is a really important ritual that we do every single morning when we're going out. And at the moment, you kind of don't have to do that at all. Yeah. You just roll out of bed and maybe brush your teeth, maybe shower, <laughs> maybe change out of pajamas, maybe not. And then we, you sit on your laptop in bed and do work. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so real, like we underestimate the importance of routine and all the things that we do to look after ourselves in the middle of, our, in the midst of the mundane things we do. Yeah. No, okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see the application of that, especially the idea of almost like your armor. What do you put put on to present yourself to the world? You know, and making sure you do that throughout. The, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. This is this is bringing up a lot of stuff I haven't been doing. <laughs> Oh, trust me. I, I'm saying this to clients and I'm like acknowledging to them. I'm like, I'm having to do this to, for myself as yeah. well. And uh, yeah, luckily when I see clients on, on via telehealth, I see them via Zoom. So they see me, a physical presentation of me and I have to look somewhat presentable. Yeah. So I'm happy to do this. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the other thing, which kind of the next thing is not working in the same place you sleep mm. is really important. and. Uh, if you have an, a desk or an office or whatever, if you if you all your life is happening in your bedroom, at least make your bed and then sit at the edge of your bed to do work. Like just physically separate some the workspace workspace from the place that you're sleeping, mm-hmm. because um, it it helps you kind of yeah it sets up a particular dynamic about if you're doing stressful things in the place that you sleep. How do you then learn to decompress and put that stress away to actually rest uh you you need separation of those spaces so if that's buying a desk if you can do that or literally just making the bed and being like now it's a workspace once once i've made the bed and i'm gonna sit over on top of the sheets rather than underneath them whatever you need to kind of do to separate those two things gotcha Um, yeah really important um I guess the third thing is going outside and uh, that could be literally walking to your mailbox and walking back. Even if you know you don't have mail, it's just the pamphlet for Pizza Hut that's been dropped off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Making an effort to go outside and see the sun is really important. Um, There's a particular mood disorder that happens for people that don't I think seasonal mood disorder, which happens when people um, live in places that they don't see sunlight a lot. So there's a, there's a a psychological impact to not having enough time outside. We have to kind of treat ourselves like, as like we treat our dogs, you know, take them for a walk. You have to take yourself out for a walk to see sunlight and breathe air. That isn't the same air you've been breathing all day. So really simple, basic stuff that um, we tend to forget how important it is um the third what's what number am i on (laughs) (laughs) thank you um is to make plans so and that's pretty yeah so making plans like um if you're living at home with family being like okay one one day this week i'm gonna cook 
dinner for everyone and we're going to sit around the table and I'm going to spend an hour or an hour and a half even just creating the meal or we're mm. going to make plans like starting a series that you're going to watch with the people you live with and watching it at the same time at the end of your at the end of your day in um one of these rotation air- marks <laughs> um, at the end of your day being like we're gonna start re-watching you know whatever tv show and we're gonna watch it at 6 p.m every night mm. so that's like a, another kind of routine so making plans that you can be excited about and make a big deal out of these plans that you're making that you're gonna enact within your house um making plans to do zoom kind of watch parties with friends Mm -hmm. making friday night drinks plans where you're gonna uh you know social distance by having a glass of wine with a friend over zoom every single friday so Mm -hmm. make the same things that you kind of would do outside outside of the situation making some semblance of plan that looks that mirrors that is important um Go ahead. I was going to say, that's really interesting because I think when we went into first round of lockdown, we were trying to, like, there was a huge boom in, like, figuring out how we mimicked normal day events on, you know, in home isolation. So there was a lot of that, like, you know, catch-ups and stuff like that. My friendship group did a few catch-ups, but it seems that we've forgotten. So it's like that reminder is so timely to, like, put that plan in, put that reminder in, put that structure back. Yeah. Yeah. And the the reality is that because we're caught up in how – awful it kind of feels to be doing it again we let go of a lot of the the things that we did kind of learn from the first time around and there was a lot of learning um a terrible scenario situation to be having to do learning but there was some learning that about our capacity to cope and what we need to cope so i guess making use of that Mm -hmm. um the last thing which i think is the most fun thing is to start a creative project without any um tied to an outcome and the so the creative part is important and the lack of an outcome dependent thing is also important so mm-hmm. i'll give you my i'll do a self-disclosure as we call them in therapy. <laughs> i have taken on doing terrible paintings like these are horrendous awful <laughs> attempts um and i have no ambition to be exhibited in the moma, MoMA museum or anything like that <laughs> Literally, this is just what I'm doing in the in-between time. Um, because, I, so I, I don't have any big plans to become an, a painter. But it's something that at the end of the day, I'm like, I have, there's so many more hours of my day left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Absolutely. I'm not commuting anywhere. I'm not going out. To see, I've just got time and hours. So I need something to fill that time. And if I can do something that is enjoyable and creative, that's nice. And also if it's like a, I'm encouraging people to, even if you're doodling, just have a big piece of paper that you're going to every day add a little bit of a doodle to, because in, at the end of six weeks, you have created something. And that makes a difference to have like, this is a physical manifestation of the last six weeks of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the spare time that I had uh, presented somewhere. That is that is also another great point because I mean, with with not commuting, we do have all this this time, and I mean, how how easy it to just find yourself on your phone or yeah. or kind of you know just completely zoning out through exhaustion or not knowing what mm-hmm. to do with yourself. So I, I like that idea of I have to think because I think my creative project at the moment is I'm trying to fix a whole bunch of jewelry, 
but that's got a very specific outcome. So I'm like, I'm wondering, I have to have a think about what I can do about jewelry splicing and all that sort of stuff. Um, I guess it, it, it can be an outcome for, well, I don't know, as long as there's not like an expectation that I, I'm going to create something magical. Because gotcha. I guess a, a, a few people that I work with are in the creative space and for them, their creative practice is linked to an outcome of this yeah. is work. Yep. So I guess it's about something that isn't work for you, even if you are, you work in the creative space. Okay. So I don't know if that jewelry's making is work for you. No, that, that's going to be, that's going to be, I think that's going to fill my creative, <laughs> my creative <laughs> uh, checklist. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Jumping on to the next bit, I wanted to touch on this word of self-care and basically what is self-care? What does it mean? Because often we see self-care advertised as a very commercialized product, you know, go get your nails done, go get your hair done or something like that. And I mean, that can be self-care, but it's, mm. it's often like you have to buy a specific soap to be able to practice self-care, <laughs> you know, it's been yeah. very much appropriated. So could you break down to us what self-care is, I suppose, and how how we should be incorporating it into our daily routine yeah well i mean self-care is is buying a lush lush bath bomb for sure um, <laughs> just um thank you for lush for sponsoring this video no i'm kidding um but that is definitely how it's kind of been marketed i mm. think the interesting thing about self-care is that it's it doesn't cost anything and it shouldn't cost anything really because self-care at the core of it is recognizing that you know, having enough self-awareness to be like, I'm tired, you know, just that's, that's, there's kind of, I, I love making lists. So if you don't like lists, I apologize. I'm going to do another list of what self-care is. I do <laughs> so love lists. <laughs> I love lists. This is my self-care is doing lists. Um, I guess the first thing is, is being um, able to recognize and have enough kind of self-awareness to recognize where you're at. And that is asking, do I have capacity for X right now? That, that is true, true self-care is like asking yourself, do I have capacity for this? And then I think the, the next step is um, after being honest with yourself, whether that answer is yes or no, is asking yourself, what do I need to build capacity? Or if, if, I'm, if I'm tired because, and I don't have capacity because I'm tired, what do I need? So then you need to recognize what you need, which is a huge step that people we often sometimes know we're not okay but we don't recognize what we need to be okay and so we need to recognize that and then the third thing is loving ourselves enough to give ourselves what it is that we do need so i guess my three list breakdown self-care is um recognizing that you're not okay or whatever and uh, the second step is kind of asking yourself what do i need and then the third is having enough love for yourself to give yourself what you need that's truly what self-care is and i mean maybe you're tired and you need rest and the 
the, the way you're going to achieve that is through a, a lush bath bomb. But most of the time it's just sitting down. Like it's, <laughs> that's literally, you just kind of need to take a seat or you need to, you know, turn off Instagram notifications for the next 30 minutes or maybe go outside and just breathe um, because you're just overwhelmed or it's, it's, it's asking someone for a hug. It's, um, you know, I, in the work in therapy, I often talk to people about what, what would the child version of you want? Because at the moment, what the child version of you is kind of, is still there, still present, your child kind of inner child stuff. Um, and what a child needs when they're distressed is to be just told that it's, it's okay and you're okay. And we forget that we need to tell ourselves that, or we need to ask people that we love to tell us that. Be like, I need you to tell me, like, bring your friend, your partner, your family member, and be like, I just need you to tell me it's going to be okay, and I'm okay. Mm. You know, like, that's really self-care is those, those things, and that doesn't cost anything. But, you know, if your self-way of what you, getting what you need is spending $300 on the ASOS website, I'm dropping so many references to product <laughs> companies. Um, if that's your form of self-care and you can afford to do that, then fine, go ahead. But it doesn't have to be that. No, I like, I like that. It's like there is a time and place for, you know, those the bath bombs. There's also a time and place for, as you said, sitting down. I, I love that. Um, often, I think especially with 3CR and the 3CR listeners and the fact that we are a grassroots organization with a lot of activists, mm-hmm. um, self-care can sometimes be seen as a bit uh, unnecessary or that there's kind of like, you know, it, it's seen as a luxury, I suppose. Could you talk about why it's, it's damaging to, you know, put self-care or self-maintenance in that box? Yeah, actually, I really like the phrase of self-maintenance rather than self-care. I think that has far less, commercial connotations mm, cool um maybe ch- just changing the language is probably a good first step i guess with act um activists i was in the midst of all of this i've seen a lot of uh burnout mm. and i guess it, it led me to kind of start doing some reading about activism and activist burnout and what i found was that often activists well this is anecdotally true anyway but you know nothing's real until someone writes a journal peer-reviewed article about it but um, (laughs) now it's real uh we can acknowledge it but uh activists often do work that has some link to themselves Mm. um and you're you're kind of internally motivated because there's some reason why this speaks to you or has an impact on you personally not all the time but often there's a personal kind of link to the work that you're doing in, as an act, in activism and that is a, a useful thing it's a great thing and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that it does make you though more susceptible to work yourself beyond the point of capacity so you kind of, you, you could do this, the self-care steps and be like, do I have capacity? And you, the answer genuinely might be no, but then you have like, okay, but this is important to me. And I, I know if I don't do the work, no one else will. Mm. So then you keep going beyond your capacity and that's what, that's when burnout happens. So there is um, a little bit of an increase in susceptibility to burnout in terms of activism work, because it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different to just work work um, because there's that kind of, there's the necessity, we see the necessity in the work being done. 
essentially. Like it needs, we need change to happen. We need this to look different. We need like there, these things need to happen. And because of that, we will push ourselves beyond our capacity. I wanted to touch on this also with like this period of lockdown amidst coronavirus, we've seen like a period of essential overdue conversations and movements happening. I'm obviously referencing like the amazing momentum of the Black Lives Matter um, movement globally. And also like things like the push for public housing is a COVID Mm -hmm. response and just all of these massive conversations, which, um, you know, the governments have been avoiding for years um, are, are finally coming to a forefront and we're seeing these cracks and, how do we sustain ourselves through monumental issues, which for a lot of activists are like in some ways exciting, in some ways exhausting um, because they, they are overdue. They are, they are, you know, lived experiences and stuff like that. How do we deal with that, that range of emotion and cope them with disappointments or setbacks such as we saw through, for example, the tower shutdown. You've just had a monumental movement, make a very clear message. And then you see a similar instance of police brutality and how how do we deal with that just range (sighs) yeah (laughs) sorry I know easy questions right now easy questions no I think I guess my that that sigh is probably Mm. a combination of a few things but I guess in in that scenario with the the flats and the essentially false imprisonment of a particular group of people from a particular um, socioeconomic background and a particular ethnic kind of breakdown there's there's so much kind of loaded within that situation Mm. and it was the if i don't know if you could think of an ultimate example of how the government fails um at various levels Mm. that's kind of demonstrative of a lot of failings i guess in terms of how do you keep going i think you have to have that moment of like that sigh of be like really and be like, what? this is hard and this sucks and mm. it's really awful. Similar to lock- the lockdown situation, you have to give yourself, you have to be like, my emotions are valid, anger is valid, um, mm. disappointment is valid, and, you know, grief is valid. Like, there's so, you have to, like, there's so many valid emotions to have mm. about this and about the situation and about other, lots of other situations. Um, So I guess it's validating yourself and being like, what I feel is real and it's valid and there is need for things to look different. I guess this is kind of what I was saying about the, you know, there's, we need things to look different. Mm. Um, We need to do, unfortunately, it's going to be the community. It has been the community doing the work of change pushing and, um, and that's going to need to continue happening. I guess self-maintenance is so critical for people doing that work because and I think I wrote about this just this morning on Instagram, the work will need to continue after the media stops paying attention. Mm. Um, And I think looking at historically, when you look at kind of change and how it's happened, there are often moments where everyone is paying attention in everyone's eyes. You know, that idea that the revolution will not be televised. There's moments where it is televised and everyone sees that it's a problem and everyone acknowledges in their kitchens that this is an issue. Mm. And then they forget, right? Like society forgets, but the people that have been doing the work need to continue doing the work and the only way you do that is if you maintain your own capacity. Absolutely. 
So it's, it's so critical for people doing this work to survive the experience of doing the work because it, it, and it won't end once the media attention dies down. And historically, we've seen that once the media attention dies down, people's um, motivation and kind of interest also goes with it. Mm. Unless you're someone who was, most of the time, it's people that were already doing the work to change, who remain doing the work to change mm. things anyway. Um, so I guess, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but I guess it's just, it's just that much more important to do some self-maintenance. And I think at the moment and in the last few weeks, it's going to look much smaller than buying that lush bath bomb. It's going to be literally just being like, I need five minutes right now in the midst of all the work that I'm doing to just breathe and go outside, walk to my mailbox, maybe scream a little bit, (laughs) but like taking that five minutes to be like, I am not okay. And this is not okay. And this is awful. And I'm valid in feeling that way. So I'm just Mm going to take five minutes to, to take a step back from this for myself. And then I'm going to come back because the the work still needs to be done. And I'm so glad you brought up, or you've dotted really this entire interview with the discussion around capacity and stuff like that, because I think it's like, it's important for not only us to recognize our own capacity, but also to recognize that potentially in this crisis, we will not get what we want from other people because they don't necessarily have that capacity to, to give or, 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 you know, they are busy directing all their energies. And especially within seeing ourselves relative to this issue and for, you know, seeing that there are certain there there are specific communities that the police are targeting and stuff like that it is really important that we we understand what what people are going through i suppose or 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 try to listen i suppose um and and work on that 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 understanding of capacity i just think it's so strong to help navigate you know okay well why isn't this person being able to respond the way i'd i'd think or or i expect them to because we're all in under this massive crucible and for some people that crucible is extraordinarily um so yeah i I suppose that's kind of my wrapping up of of this um with and also actually tying back to your like your checklist you're right everything that you said for like dealing with covid you can deal with that that crisis of setting routine setting the plan going okay well i can't do the work right now but maybe in you know x amount of time i'll be able to get back to it or something like that Yeah. yeah um i suppose my thing is like coming out of the idea that covid like the, this shutdown will end eventually and, and coming back to it and keeping that in mind, how useful is that within sustaining ourselves? Is it, is it good to have something to look forward to and project, you know, this is, this is what the end result will be, or maybe this will, this, you know, we'll be able to feel less stress at some point, or is it better just to kind of focus day by day? Um, I think probably a combination of both. I think because there's so much uncertainty around um, the pandemic, Um, I think the important thing is to figure out how to do life well now. Mm. Um, And, you know, maybe it's, it's probably good to assume that this goes on for a a fair amount of time and just plan for that. Um, Because I think we, you, the, there's a kind of problem in thinking about it as, oh, this is going to end at this point and then, and then I'll be okay. And then life will go back to normal because Mm. then we, we kind of postponed our lives until that, that, that day, that moment happens, but our lives continue. Um, so you can't really postpone life. And I think you should try and 
live life the best way you can in the situation that you find yourself in. Mm. Um, all things being considered, um, obviously, but yeah, I think it's important to just continue to find ways to have live an enriched life in the midst of this rather than just holding on to a day that it'll be over. And I think you make like the excellent point with the discussion we were just having about, you know, some of the stuff that are happening right now, even when COVID ends, we've got the work to do. It's not going to be going back to normal because our normal was entirely messed up to begin with. So that's just, I suppose that's a really interesting, like that's a good outlook to take. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I really appreciate giving us your tips and checklists. And I, (laughs) yeah, thank you so much for coming and joining us, Nasleefa. Well, thank you so much for having me. I guess I just did want to say one last Mm, thing. I think an important thing about capacity is that in the midst of everything that's going on, do what you do really well and do the thing that you know to do really well and support other people who are doing the other bits. I think that's an important thing to know because you don't have to, one person doesn't have to do everything, but you, you, there's a thing that you do, there's a lane that you're in and you can do that really well and highlight the issues that are going on really well within that, that sphere or that space of influence that you have and support the people that are doing it in spheres and places that you don't have influence and you don't have capacity to. Um, and that's pretty much how we get the job done is that we just do our bit really well and support the other person to do their bit really well. <laughs> Good community, like lift up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. Not a problem. Thank you.